G'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 30 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view and just for this week it's going to be Plane Crazy way, way, way down under. Packing my Antarctic survival gear and my thermal underwear, I'm Steve Fisher. And I'm Grant McCarran. Yeah, that's right Steve, this episode we're focusing purely on Antarctica, the great unknown, the continent way at the bottom of the world, the last frontier as they call it on the planet and uh, possibly the last clean bastion of relatively unpolluted land. There's still some pollution down there thanks to the rest of the world, but on the whole it's very pristine, very crisp, uh, very dry, cool air. I, myself being a hater of humidity, I would uh, quite uh, quite like that. It's probably better if it wasn't so freaking cold. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but yeah it's very dry air and uh, yeah, this episode we've we've got a, a big collection of content for you, all related to Antarctica. We're going to be chatting with uh, one of the pilots who flies the A319 down to the Blue Ice Runway, as well as flying a couple of modified CASAs down there. We've also got the gentleman who organises the uh, Qantas sightseeing tours over the Antarctic ice cap, uh, where they fly in, these days are flying an A380 over the uh, over the ice with bands and uh, polar experts and so on. Uh, we also have a chat with a passenger who was on board one of the flights and with a flight attendant who worked on one of the earlier flights back in the uh, the days of the Boeing 747-400s doing it. Yeah, we also talk with uh, David Vanderhoof about a couple of uh, aspects of flying in Antarctica, specifically the uh, tragic Air New Zealand DC-10 crash into the side of Mount Erebus near McMurdo Sound and the various uh, white ice and blue ice runways that can be found on Antarctica. So uh, all up, a pretty packed episode. So I I think you should put on your thermal gear, put a bit of extra ice in your drink, sit back and uh, contemplate the penguins. Yes, I've got a thermos of hot coffee ready to go, Grant. I think it should last me until we get at least as far as Tasmania. That long, huh? Yeah, maybe we'd better pack a double thermos. I think so. So see if you can keep up with my vodkas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Grant, so without too much further ado, we'll hop straight into our first interview. We recorded this at the uh, centenary of Australian powered flight celebrations at Melton recently. Uh, the uh, the good people from Sky Traders actually flew in one of their uh, their CASA aircraft, which uh, they also operate down there in Antarctica normally. And uh, we had a great talk to their, their captain there, Dan Colborn. Really interesting. And he tells us all about what it's like to fly down in Antarctica. <laughs> Okay, standing here with Dan Colborn. Uh, Dan, you are with Sky Traders, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Um, flying both the CASA 212 and the Airbus 319 to and from Antarctica. Excellent. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Sky Traders, the company, to start with? Yeah, Sky Traders have uh, been around for about 30 odd years and um, they are a company that looks for um, solutions to aviation problems. And for a number of years, there was a, a desire to have an airlink to and from Antarctica. And there have been various uh, ways and thoughts to achieve that over the years but one of the issues with the Australian sector of the Antarctic is uh, both weather and lack of suitable areas to land even skied aircraft and they came up with a proposal that involved a business jet running to and from Antarctica on wheels and would land on a a hardened ice surface that could be cleared of snow and then also running to CASA 212-400s. The advantages of those aircraft is they they have the range to link directly the two main Australian bases which are roughly Melbourne to Brisbane distance okay. apart and there's Fair basically distance. basically yeah, 750 odd miles and there's basically nothing in the middle yeah. <laughs> so they needed something with a range to link that directly and then over the years the capability realisation grew with 
respect to what this could achieve and the uh, initial business jet which was the, the Falcon 900EX um, was seen to probably be a little bit limiting size wise and it grew and then it's become the, the Airbus 319 and so that flies down and back once a week roughly during the Antarctic summer which is nominally November to early March and the C212s fly down uh, in late October early November and then they come back at the late February early March and uh, we just came back two weeks ago uh, from the Antarctic and um, they're down there the whole time flying scientists to and from between the bases to and from field sites uh, we did a big uh, whale survey, so doing okay. some uh, whale census survey in the middle of the pack ice, uh, which yep. has never been done before. Um, so quite a variety of, uh, of scientific endeavours. So uh, what's the the CASA is down there for the whole... You take these aircraft down for the whole summer? That's correct, yeah. Yep. Yep. So they, they arrive down there. We, we fit them with uh, ferry tanks. It's about a 10 to 11-hour ferry flight south, so yep. it's a long way out over the, over the water. Yeah. And then we uh, once we're down there, we take the ferry tanks out and then operate within the within the Antarctic for the summer on skis. Uh, we've got skis fitted to the aircraft, so we can raise or lower those skis, yep. uh, depending whether we're operating on, on, ice, on hard ice, which we might choose to use wheels, or we use skis if uh, the snow conditions are, okay. you know, demand that. So what's it like flying in Antarctica? I'd have to say it's a privilege. You know, it is. Uh, it's an incredible place. Uh, it's vast. Some of the the sights that you get to see. I mean, it's a privilege to just get down there, let alone to fly around it in, in the air. And yeah. uh, particularly in the late at night when the sun's low and all the everything's sort of bathed in pink and huge icebergs sitting in the water and the wildlife and uh, remote mountain ranges yeah. contrasted with areas of the plateau where you can fly for four hours and it's just nothing but white in every direction. You know, you've just got every different environment down there it's incredible so what's the training like to get ready to fly down there like antarctic exposure plus also any specifics on flying that you have to do well clearly with the two and twos on skis we need a ski endorsement and yep. some ski um ski experience we do all that in-house i mean a number of us had experience prior to starting this operation on skis elsewhere in the world um and also experience in cold polar places so we brought that sort of when the when the company first sort of op- began these operations down there that that uh, that experience was there and um but a lot of down there is local knowledge i mean it, it takes so much um to know the weather patterns you know it takes no matter what your flying background it's probably a good couple of years at least before you really well you're never really comfortable with you're always learning you know <laughs> ne- but before you really got to know and and felt fairly confident that you could uh, you knew the area and the snow conditions and uh you know, it doesn't matter how many thousands of hours you got; it's just a learning curve because it is so such a different, such a unique environment. Yeah, I, I imagine that you you can't let your guard down at all, can you? Pretty much no. You know, there's always there's always something that that could catch you out, or uh, you know, which is the same for anything in aviation really. But uh, but down there, there's a, a few more issues of you know wind effects or local um, snow conditions, uh, and you you learn to read. You know, you, the weather forecasting is very good, but they have limited data from which they can make the forecast. Yeah. So um, you learn to, to to put local issues and concerns, you know, on that on that data and make your uh, decisions accordingly. Yeah. So, like deals like whiteout, do you have to deal with that often? Yep, quite regularly. It's something we try and avoid, but you know, we all do. You know, we're all aware of the the issues of whiteout. Um, we have various ways of mitigating that uh, the, the the risk of whiteout, uh, particularly in in actual landing, because if we're landing. On on a on a on a skiway, you have no surface definition whatsoever. Um, so you you could be two foot above the ground and not know it was there. Um, so we 
we have different ways of doing that. Uh, we can drop a smoke flare out the back if we wanted some some a bit more ground definition. We can have if there's people on the ground, we might get them to put some garbage bags out, just yep. black garbage bags filled with snow. We can land beside those. Yep. So we've got all these different ways of mitigating that the risk of whiteout. Uh, you know, which and it is one of the the, the, the bigger issues down there. Um, but you know, something that we're all aware of and. Um, you know, yep. work around. Yeah, because it's all VFR flying, isn't it? But basically, yes. Yeah, yeah we all we, there. There are no nav aid, or there's a GPS approach in in the Wilkins runway. Yeah. But uh, there are no nav aids anywhere else, so we want to be. You know, um, it's all pretty yeah. much all VFR. <laughs> Original pilotage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, speaking of the Wilkins runway, that's the Blue Ice runway, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah. It's a, just under four thousand meters. Um, about 70 kilometres inland from Casey and it's situated up there because any lower it would have a lot of melting problems Um, and just because of the temperature over summer because it can get up up to zero or slightly above it on the coast but further inland it's a little bit colder Um, the wind's fairly much unidirectional it's pretty much comes directly from the east all the time Um, and it's rolled and proofed to to suit the Airbus um, landing weights so what's it like flying an Airbus and landing it in Antarctica? Coming from the background of flying the 212s down there, I mean, it's it's a familiar environment. Uh, the runway is exceptional. It, it is smoother than half the airports in wow. many parts of the world. I mean, <laughs> it, it's you virtually play billiards on it. It's, it's, it's quite an incredible engineering achievement. How uh, thick is it, just out of interest? Uh, the, the ice is... Oh, it's probably a thousand meters thick oh, okay. more. you know it, yeah. it's basically what happens is snow falls and then it gets compressed over millennia and then as it moves down the ice sheet from high up on the plateau it gets closer to the coast and then the wind blows the surface snow off and it, it, you get some ablation and that then exposes this hard ice underneath which is pretty much as hard as concrete and it's got these beautiful veins in it sort of like an almost sort of a quartz type type wow. feel to it in in, in places it's okay. uh, quite quite an amazing uh substance really to 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 land on but uh you know there's there's a few you know there's a little bit of optical illusion because there's there's actually nothing the runway slopes up a couple of percent and there's nothing around that gives you any sort of sense of level you know because the whole the whole plateau is sort of sloping up slightly but they're all things that we're familiar with so yeah. uh, you know it's it's what we do you know and uh, it's what yeah. we've, we've got experience in and okay how often are you flying the a319 to and from it roughly goes down once a week for the Australian programs between okay. sort of October, November and, and early February. Okay. We also do some work for this last summer for both the American program and the French and Italian Antarctic programs. Those flights ran variously out of Hobart down to McMurdo, yep. which is the, the, the French, sorry, the uh, American base south of uh, New Zealand, yep. and also up to Christchurch. So we yep. did quite a few flights for them as well. Okay. So they all swap around. And as far as crewing, um, we might do half a summer on each, both okay. the 319 and, and uh, the 212, so okay. it tends to break up things a little bit. Um, you know, it's great fun being on the ice, but, uh, you know, year in, year out, it's a bit hard on the family life, so uh, we yeah. get to break it up a bit by, you know, yeah. spending two months down there every other year. Come back to the warmth of a balmy 20 degrees, it must be, like, tropical for you. It, it is, yeah, and it's actually, the when you first get out, it's the humidity you notice more than anything, oh, rather yeah. than the heat, because yeah. yeah, the humidity, even in Hobart when we land, Hobart's not the most humid place in the world but you really notice that they're just the contrast you know because yeah, the humidity down there is like 10 percent or less isn't it R- prob- yeah i mean in, in antarctica it's very dry yeah. i mean it, it really is because the air comes down from the largely the, the polar high the air yeah. sinks on the polar high and then flows outwards towards the coast and uh, it's a very dry environment yeah uh, do you have to have a different diet while you're down there i know some people when they're in the ice in the far north they talk about a high high calorie diet or things like that when they're running around on the outside um you probably eat a little bit more we don't uh 
don't consciously drink olive oil or anything else like that, like some of the polar explorers do. But uh, you know, the food there is very good. I mean, the, we we all um, we live in the or main, based out of one of the Casey or Davis, the, the yeah. large Australian um, Antarctic research stations. They're very comfortable. You know, we've got our own room and. You know, there's good satellite telephone communication facilities. There's a, you know, there'd be 50 to 80 people in a summer living there okay. as well, varying trades, scientists, support yep. people. Um, and there's a, the food's excellent, you know, big, you know, sort of Bain Marie mess hall. Yeah. yeah, you know, food's very good. Um, you know, really can't, it's pretty good from that, pretty good from that point of view. And, uh, you know, come Christmas or, uh, thing is a, a pretty good fare at Christmas uh, you know they, they stock up in advance and uh, bring it all down and it's quite Excellent. amazing what they can do with old food Well I imagine the A319's really opened everything up for getting people to and from Antarctica compared to the ships as it used to be Exactly because um, when in the olden days they had the the ship run running down three or four times a year and if a scientist might only have two weeks of work to do he or she'd have to spend three or four weeks on a ship waiting to get there get off the ship would disappear for a couple of months then come back and so what the 319s allowed is the scientists to go down get off do the do their work and yeah. then get it back on the ship again get, get back on the plane again rather and, and go straight home and uh, you know it allows a higher throughput of scientists and also a a higher calibre of scientists yeah. is able to travel down because quite often uh, you know, people higher up in the scientific community d- couldn't spare the time to yep. sit dormant on a boat whereas now they can go down and do their bit and come back so you know the the 319 really has opened up the um, the capabilities and and also the reliability of the 319 being a new aircraft um, yep. it's that excellent reliability I mean we did five so we did six return flights to the Antarctic in seven days um, wow. this February, just gone, um, both for the Australian program and uh, and the US program. And there were, I mean, there were six scheduled. I mean, yeah. they all ran to time. It's been exceptional. The main advantage is that we've got the um, it's an EDTO flight, or it used to be known as ETOPS flight. Okay, um, yeah. But we have uh, underfloor. We've got extra fuel tanks that allow us to do the flight without refueling in the yep. Antarctic. So that has a twofold advantage. One, it means that you don't have a PNR yep. effectively, and secondly, it removes any environmental res- uh, issues with fuel and you know mm-hmm. trying to truck or well, first of all ship twenty odd thousand liters of fuel to the Antarctic and then move it up to the runway and then refuel aircraft and all the concerns about spilling and yep. all that. So it's removed that completely yep. and. Uh, so there's the, the safety of not having a PNR, and um, yep. and the environmental, you know, uh, mitigating any environmental concerns, yep. and then you know, obviously that then has a cost benefit yep. to you know to the to the science community. No, indeed, indeed. Now, Dan, tell us about yourself. Uh, what's your history of flight? Um, <laughs> where you? Where, when did you first know you wanted to fly, and how did it go from there? I always wanted to fly. I was just in radio control planes as a little boy, and yeah. you know that's probably a standard thing. And uh, and then uh, learned to fly in just down here in Moorabbin, okay. um, and then moved up to the did a little bit of instructing for a while. Yep. Then moved up north to do the traditional sort of two ten <laughs> bashing around the yep. territory, and moved over to Cairns doing some more uh, charter work out of there. Then did a stint with the Flying Doctors, um, and but my passion outside of flying was always in sort of cold places and a lot of sort of climbing and those sorts of things and in mountain mountain ranges around the world. And I'd always wanted to get to the Antarctic, and then the idea of actually sort of flying in the Antarctic uh, when this project was was sort of in embryonic stage, I. Uh, it was something I was sort of pursuing fairly vigorous, vigorously and uh, that's sort of a blend of career and personal passion, really, yep. um, to be able to fly down there. So I've been I've been here since the start and it's this we've just finished our sixth, sixth season now. So oh, wow. um, 
yeah yeah it's good fun how do you go for navigation uh, itself down there like with the obviously being down at the pole but how does that affect your instruments we don't run anything to magnetic because we quite often we're flying around the, ma- the south magnetic pole so the compass will just lazily spin idly yeah, yeah. randomly uh, we run everything in true uh, in the Australian part of the Antarctica everything runs in true uh, reality is we just use GPS to go from A to B and uh, but we do also carry an astro compass on board so we can uh, check you know use that as a double check uh, as a backup um, which is basically a reverse sextant if you like yeah. um, you know which is using the olden days so we can, we can navigate by that as well um, that'll okay. tell you where true north is and yep. make everything else from there and even when using the, the GPS we do you know in the back of your mind particularly when you're inland on the plateau you do do a gross error check by sort of working out the sun the time of day the sun yes that's where it should be yeah, yep, yep. that's right you know just a gross error checks more than anything else uh, because when you're leaving an inland station going to the coast you there is nothing that you could know what direction you're going in yeah. besides the sun i mean it's just white in every direction <laughs> Um, and I suppose more often than not, you'd be landing down there in the sun, even though it's midnight, this sort of thing? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's 24 hour daylight, so, yeah. uh, you know, th- th- there's that in, in, the, in the high season, so yeah, that's that's not a problem. Yeah. Um, and uh, along the coast, I mean, the navigation's traditional nav, I mean, you we all know that coast fairly well, and you can you know, sort of yeah. know one bit from another and know where you are, but, uh, yeah. you know, but once you go inland, certainly, uh, yeah, GPS. Running down from Hobart, what, you, what would be an alternate airport if you needed one? With the 319, um, uh, the alternates we can carry, EDT alternates of Hobart, Lonnie, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, right. Christchurch, you know, got all those options. Right. We've also got McMurdo, we're within three hours of McMurdo, so yep. for, for the 319 we've got alternate airports uh, um, everywhere um, okay. that we can carry. Um, but yeah, with the 212s, it's a you know, one way halfway, it's a one way trip pretty That's much. Um, yeah, yeah. But but heading, well, coming home or with the wind, so I mean, we actually had enough fuel to get to Melbourne, you know, because the wind was so good. Yeah. Going down, we've got um, the. Uh, We've got Demont Deville where we would pretty much head to. That's the closest base, and we go to there. But if we didn't get in there for whatever reason, we're just going to land on the plateau somewhere. We've got skis, so you know, mm-hmm. the whole continent's your alternate. Really. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but certainly for the for the three nineteen, you know, the the EDT alternates are. Um, yeah. And when the Wilkins uh, strip is open, there is there a crew there permanently? I think I read in a magazine recently. There is, yeah, yeah, there is a crew there. Uh, um, varies a couple more at the start of the season and a couple less at the end, but uh, yep. or in the middle rather. But uh, yeah, they're there for um, to you know keep the strip in good condition. Um, They've got a Vasi set up there or something like that. There, there's a Pappy there, yeah, right. yep. yeah. Um, and so there's a GPS approach and a Pappy. Uh, They've got runway markers down the side, which are bamboo post black flags on them. Um, cool. They work very well. You can't really have anything on the ground because they'll blow over and yeah. you know because one of the phenomena you can get down there is what's called drifting snow or blowing snow where you can actually you could be walking around you can see 100 miles in every direction but you can't see your feet because the snow is so dry it just picks up a little bit of a dust layer akin to a dust layer it's a bit like liquid nitrogen sort yeah. of flying past you and you, you might not actually see your feet but you can see you know, wow. everywhere else so you, you've got it you can't really have markers too close to the ground in, in some conditions yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, fascinating stuff there are, there are a lot I mean there are a lot of in, very interesting environmental you know weather phenomena as well i mean you you can fly along and occasionally you might actually see a mountain range in the distance reflected in itself in the sky because you're flying underneath an inversion layer and you'll actually see the see a a perfect mirror image of it just upside down or you'll see a mountain that you physically shouldn't be able to see because it's being reflected over the horizon 
I'll refract it over the horizon, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, quite a lot of really interesting phenomena. Mirages and all that. Yeah. Thing. Yep. A um, couple of other interesting phenomena that we get sort of what's called a hydraulic jump, where the where the wind comes down off the plateau, hits the hits sort of the water or, or the generally the water because it's a coastal phenomenon and then sort of jumps up it's a little bit like a rotor but it's a, a different formation yeah. and um yeah, they can be pretty rough and pretty bumpy but you know you learn to read where they are and, okay. and uh, what do they do with the 319 in the off season is that stay in australia or is it good uh it, it's based here and it's available for charter anywhere in the world uh, we've, we did a, a few charters last year um it's the only one on the australian course. register i think isn't it i believe so there's been talk of getting some more 319s yeah. uh for one of the airlines was talking about at one stage but uh, it's the, uh, to my knowledge it's the only one here yeah i think it's um, jq Chester, okay. I think we're talking about 319s for for doing some of the smaller smaller runs. Okay, but, yeah. but uh, we're certainly the only one that's got the range. I mean, we've got a with a, we've got four of six ferry tanks generally always fitted, and um, you know we can easily do Hawaii one stop Tahiti. Just sorry, Hawaii direct rather than Tahiti or any of those yeah. places. So Pacific one stop easily. Yeah, and, uh, you know, highly so sought after in the any other any other application. Yeah, I mean, as for various, um, you know, there's a lot of. A lot of applications it's it's great for, and uh, particularly the range anywhere in the world with one stop, you know, um, in a sort of range, and uh, you know it's it's really versatile aircraft for that. And uh, we've got it fitted in an either all business class config or or forty eight business class fifty four economy. Yeah, oh, sorry, twenty four. Lots of other comfy in there. There's an article in uh, the recent Australian Aviation magazine. <coughs> Our favourite magazine. Our favourite magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we know. I, I noticed in a picture there that it's quite a comfortable looking configuration. Yeah, yeah, where they've right. got all their heavy gear on and yeah, all this yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, so, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I didn't realise that there'd actually be two classes on a polar flight. <laughs> <laughs> well, we generally for the Australian uh, program, we because the the limitations at the other end of the sheer number of people actually take down, and the fact that a lot of it would actually be cargo as well. Yeah. Um, we just have 28 people, up to 28 people going down at any one time. Okay. And then the rear half of the cabin has uh, cargo seat packs. Oh, okay. And so we have extra cargo and personal baggage and stuff in yeah. there, and then the rest of the cargo is all under the floor. So yep. that's, how it, um, okay. that's how it goes from there. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Excellent. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to say while we've got you here about uh, you know special magic moments or anything that hurts the highlights of your time over the last six seasons? Oh, look, there's so many, so many great... Things. I mean, it's just such an amazing place to fly around. I mean, was, I think probably the highlight for last summer for us was um, so we're we're doing a, a whale survey flight for the um, ultimately for the CSIRO to look at whale populations in the pack ice, which hadn't been done before. And uh, during the course of that, um, over an ice shelf, we discovered an emperor penguin colony, which okay. was before that unknown to science, which is a fairly large colony. We're able to confirm that there and there are actually chicks breeding and you know, oh, cool. chicks there and you know breeding pairs and things. So yeah. that was uh, you know it's always always great when you can be doing something else and look yeah. out and sort of realise that and sort of you know contact the people who are who are involved in that sort of thing and uh, you know really make their day and gather a, a lot of the scientific data opportunistically. Yep. It's fantastic. Yep. So. Okay. okay. Thanks, Dan. All Appreciate right. your time. <laughs> no worries. excited to announce the first ever Matt Hall Racing YouTube video competition. Every month between now and the end of the season, my team is going to award a Matt Hall Racing gift pack for the video they think is the best featuring me. At the end of the year, one of these winners, plus one randomly drawn entrant, will win a flight with me. All you have to do to enter is make a video between one and three minutes long, then send us a link at team at matthallracing.com 
So let us know that you posted it on YouTube. Good luck. Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. Want to advertise your business on the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plain Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plain Crazy Down Under website. Joining us now is David Vanderhoof, and we're going to have a quick chat about some of the history of flights over uh, Antarctica. The most important one being the Air New Zealand flight that unfortunately crashed into the side of uh, Mount Erebus. So, David, how are you doing, mate? Good. Um, it's kind of strange wanting to talk to you ice and frozen because we're today had a record high of 91 degrees Fahrenheit, which after a blizzard of 25 inches of snow on a regular basis in the winter, now it's April and we have 91. Jeez. I don't know what the heck's going on with our weather. <laughs> but we're here to talk about ice. Well, you asked us to send heat a few episodes ago and we've delivered. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, we have indeed. See what see what happens. Careful what you want. You might get Careful it. What you wish for. Yes. <laughs> During the 1970s, Air New Zealand was flying their uh, sightseeing tours over Antarctica in DC-10 aircraft that they were flying at the time, and uh, everything was going pretty well until uh, tragically one of their aircraft impacted the slopes of Mount Erebus. And David, let's have a chat about how an Air New Zealand DC-10 Antarctic adventure flight was actually held back then, how it would progress. Well, let's start off with why Mount Erebus, which is, and Erebus is the southernmost active volcano in the world. Its summit is 3,794 meters, 12,448 feet, and Erebus is named after the Greek guard of darkness, but actually the volcano is named after Sir James Clark Ross's ship Erebus. The normal Air New Zealand flight took off from Auckland, would fly down to Antarctica over McMurdo Station, over the Ross Ive Shelf, and do a figure eight over Erebus, then fly back to Christchurch, arriving almost 11 hours later, take an hour, hour for refueling, and continue back to Auckland, arriving two hours after that. A total of 8,630 kilometers over 13 hours was this same-day tourist flight down and back. Okay, and so they, they would actually do a figure-eight over Erebus, not around it? They would do it around, around it so that both sides of the aircraft could see. They booked the aircraft um, on the window seats. They tried to keep the center sections open so that yep. the, the people could move crosswise to view on both sides of the aircraft. And they did the they did the figure eight over Erebus so that both sides of the aircraft could see the um, volcano itself. Okay, so they'd do a left-hand orbit, then go out, turn around, and come back into a right-hand orbit around Erebus. Absolutely. Yep. So that was a typical flight, but was that what they were really flying? Well, no. The pilots would descend to 3,000 meters and continue visually towards the uh, volcano. 
1,800 meters or 6,000 feet, they would do this in good weather. Clearly, evidence is shown, and this is also because of New Zealand Air New Zealand's travel magazine, they were going far below that level to provide the viewers a better look. And clearly, that, that day, our two pilots who were inexperienced, having never flown this Antarctic mission, were flying at a lower level than they should have been in what would have been clear or visual VFR rules. In this case, it was not VFR rules, and the weather had taken a serious turn for the worse. Yeah, they were in whiteout on the, on the day of the accident, as I understand it. What the research has determined is, as they were coming up to the mountain, the visibility was one solid sheet of white, and they could not differentiate between the mountain and the top of the mountain in the sky. And as they approached the volcano, the collision warning system went off, and they thought they were much farther away from the mountain than they actually were, um, and only took a 15-degree pull-up to avoid the mountain because their depth perception the mountain was far closer than they were than they thought they were, so they figured a 15 degrees should be able to take them up and over the over the volcano without a problem. And it was almost seconds later that they impacted almost straight into the mountain, and the casualties was instantaneous. It was taking you took a DC-10 and crashed it right into the side of a wall. Yeah, it's it's classed yeah. as a controlled flight into terrain. Yeah, the information I was getting was that what was happening was the previously they had the official route that they were flying, but the crews were actually flying a different route the ops ops people had been keying in a different route the crew understood that they were flying a different route and they were flying they were going straight up the uh, the center of the the big open space around the mountain so they knew they could uh, go down low uh, but that this particular flight ops had changed the flight path to be the official flight path which puts it closer to the mountain but hadn't actually told the crew that the, the crew hadn't actually been informed and it was common practice at that time for operations staff to uh, in, set up the INS and the path and so on and the crew would just come in and fly the aircraft uh, so they, the crew thought they were flying up the middle of the sound when actually they were flying the official flight path not the usual one so uh, yeah that, that was another thing contributing to them not realizing where they were on the mountain. The DC-1030 that they were flying was the first one with the CF-6 engines. It was the fourth Air New Zealand DC-1030. It had approximately 20,000 hours of flight time on it when this happened. So um, for all intents and purposes, it was a fairly new airframe. The pilots who were Captain Jim Collins and co-pilot Greg Casson. Um, they had never flown to Antarctica before, but Air New Zealand ranked them as one of their most experienced crews with the DC-10. So uh, the operations messed up their, backed up their, by them providing wrong information and no one double-checking it. They did have a briefing on how to fly the mission that occurred um, nine days before the accident, um, which consisted of, the previous pilots telling what their experience was, and they were um, handed the flight pattern and the flight manifest. But that was there wasn't really any extent cross training. You would think that maybe the 
you would fly one experienced pilot and one non-experienced crew on the mission, but literally these two guys had never flown it before. But Air New Zealand felt that they were pro- accomplished enough that they shouldn't have ha- shouldn't have happened. This should have been a pretty easy flight for them. If they had have been flying the path that the previous crews had flown, they that this never would have happened. It's definitely a, a, a number of factors coming in. The, the crew not realizing they're on a different flight path, going lower than they should have, all these kind of things. I mean, there's been a lot of lessons learned out of this, this accident. It really is a remarkable for the fact that we lost, as far as passengers go, New Zealand lost 180 passengers plus the 12 crew. Japan had 24, United States had 22, the UK had six, Canada had two, Australia had one, France had one, and Switzerland had one for a total of 237 um, all lost in a matter of seconds. There was a lot done um, as far as the U.S. Navy, upon finding out that they lost contact with Flight 901, launched one LC-130 from McMurdo Station, two UH-1A. And, and later, there was a recovery effort called Operation Overdue, which involved a team of New Zealand police officers, a 40-squadron C-130 aircraft, and they spent a week camped on the mountain trying to recover bodies and return the fallen people to New Zealand. One of the ramifications of Operation Overdue, evidently, was there was a huge case of post-traumatic stress disorder from all of the rescue workers. A a similar thing happened to us here on 9-11, where the event and where they were working and the fact that they were working so closely in a crash hostile environment, there was a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress trauma. Um, from yeah. Operation Overdue, which was the rescue or the recoveries. The recovery, yeah. They, yeah. If you do a bit of searching on the net, you can find a couple of the stories from the police people and uh, and their um, their reports on what it was like down there. They were all volunteers, and it was it was pretty intense what they went through, and not just the sights I've seen, but also dealing with the the super cold and um, and what it was doing to everything while they were down there. So uh, another factor in this is that it's. Uh, it's been 30 years, so a lot of the uh, secrets acts are, are lifting and, and a lot of information is starting to come out that was kept suppressed, that's painting the picture. And we just last year had uh, Air New Zealand officially apologizing for what happened, which was pretty big. There was also an award given to 60 U.S. personnel, Navy, mostly Navy from McMurdo Station, who also facilitated in the recovery operation. And they were awarded in 2009, June 5th. Forty Americans, mostly Navy personnel, were able to receive a medal for Operation Overdue. So there's a, there a strong U.S. presence involved yep. with this. Also. An interesting thing to note here, just looking at some of the notes we've made here too, is that uh, there were 60 recovery workers down there and uh, there was quite a lot of pressure brought to bear apparently by the Japanese government because there was Japanese citizens on board. So the recovery effort looks like it was quite intense and in the end all but 44 of the uh, the victims were identified. Yeah, they did, a, they did a pretty good job of the recovery given the conditions they were working in and the state of the bodies. One other interesting fact about this flight, guys, that um, is probably not widely known, in fact, until we started doing some notes here, I didn't actually realise that, but there was actually supposed to be one uh, rather well-known tour guide that was slated to be on that flight and at the last minute had to pull out. That would have been Sir Edmund Hillary. He was the tour guide on quite a few of the previous 14 flights. The day of the flight, he had to cancel, and his climbing companion substituted for him by the name of Peter Mulgrew. So the only person who 
out of a dumb luck, Hillary got called away and Peter Mulgrew stood in as the guide. Um, and I think, Grant, that you have there's some controversy about Mr. Mulgrew. Uh, there, there was some scuttlebutt going around that the tour directors were saying, we need to go lower. We need to go lower. We have to show these people a good fight. We need to go lower. That was that was what I'd heard. But um, I haven't had I haven't got any evidence to back that up at the moment. And I guess really with um, with all that sort of stuff, we'd, we'd never really know now, would we? I mean, all these years later and, and nobody really would have known what was going on, you know, exactly on the aircraft at that time except for its heading and its its altitude this sort of stuff but who would really know whether he had said that or not yeah and and it was it was scuttlebutt from previous flights but we we do know that they were flying below their set parameters so we'll just i guess we should just leave it at that yeah a lot of things were learnt from uh, from what happened with this flight and the accreditation, the the training, and the regulations for flying over Antarctica have all been um, much more rigidly regulated now. And uh, of course, with the better technology that we've got on aircraft these days, it's inherently a much safer endeavour to head down that way now. It's a lot has changed between the 70s and now in terms of the technology and the the approach. Uh, we've certainly learnt a lot about uh, conducting those flights safely in terms of uh, briefing pilots these days. In fact, not long after the uh, accident, airlines around the world changed the way they operated and pilots started keying in the uh, their navigation and route data into the INS uh, rather than leaving it to ops people and just coming in and, and flying. The, the pilots would actually key it in and, and have a bit more say in what's going on, a bit more awareness. The, the whole issue of experienced crew as well, that's been picked up by a lot of other airlines when they're doing these kind of flights and, and other, other areas. Uh, for instance, flights and public in New Guinea, flights into Hong Kong's old Kai Tak airport, the Antarctic tours, the things, they, they can't proceed unless you have a captain who is fully rated and has flown a certain number of missions into that area so that they know what's going on, what to expect. So these are a few of the learnings and unfortunately it was it was a tragedy that could have been avoided. Once again, the, the famous confluence of events, the lining up of the Swiss cheese combined to put them in the wrong place at the wrong altitude and the inevitable occurred. So a bit of a tragedy there but uh, fortunately we've learnt from those lessons and now flying over Antarctica are a lot safer and, uh, and people do, do seem to have a lot a lot of fun on them still even though they're not quite as low. Well we might uh, we might wrap that one up there guys but David just before we go we've been talking a lot about the Australian flights that fly down to the bases uh, down at uh, Antarctica but of course the United States has a, a big base down there at McMurdo and uh, you were telling us earlier that they actually have a number of uh, blue ice type runways down there. Actually Steve after spending this this winter in the blizzard I figured what the heck we should talk some more about snow and ice. <laughs> <laughs> um, this runway only defer is only referring to one runway. Uh, I didn't realize that there's actually three at McMurdo Station. The first one is the one that is near and dear to my heart, which is Williams Field. Williams Field was actually named after a tractor driver who, during Operation Deep Freeze in 1956, his tractor crashed through the ice and unfortunately he drowned. Williams Field is 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 the snow field. That's the home of the LC-130s, the ones with the two-ton skis attached to them. It is literally only packed snow, eight meters of it, as a matter of fact. And it's the primary airfield for McMurdo. The next one is the white ice runway, which is Pegasus Field. Pegasus Field is named after a... Um, C-121, a uh, constellation which was um, owned by the Navy by the name of Pegasus. It crashed in that field, um, and but luckily all the people survived, all the crew and passengers. Pegasus Field is a white ice 
field. It's used for aircraft with landing there. They do not need skids, and it's the second most used airfield in McMurdo Station. The big one, the blue ice one, is the ice runway. It's made up of sea ice and sea ice pack that is two meters in uh, two plus meters in depth. The largest ever aircraft to land on the ice runway was a C-5. C-17s and smaller aircraft routinely use it, and it can only be used through October and December because after December, the sea ice breaks up, and actually that runway is 10,000 feet long. Now, the C-17 pilots say it's only slightly more slippery than landing on concrete. Um, It's in for the ice runway, and in the season, it's gotten pretty routine that they can land stuff down, but there is a couple of pictures of a C-5 sitting out on the ice bed and, and a couple of Air Force pictures of C-17 sitting out there. It is kind of phenomenal, but when you really have a job to do, you send in a C-130 with skis. Either the Navy or the New York Air National Guard, LC-130s rock. Yeah. That's just a personal so, bias. Geez, I couldn't imagine so, landing a C-5 down there. That'd, that'd uh, stress the uh, the ice out, I would have thought. That's a big bird. That's interesting, though, that those, are the, those three runways are separate from the Wilkins runway, which is the one that Captain Dan was talking to us about, where they fly the A319 from Melbourne to Antarctica and back. That's the Wilkins one, which is on, I believe that's separate again to the, the blue ice one that's part of McMurdo. Is that correct? Yeah, there's the, that's that's the one attached to the New Zealand station, correct? Oh, to the Australian Antarctic Territory. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, but it's it's similar to it's similar to the ice runway. What I thought was really interesting was, believe it or not, the all three runways have ICAO codes. The ice runway is NZIR. The Williams Field is NZWD, and Pegasus Field is NZPG. Now they don't have IATA codes yet, but you know, never <laughs> never say never. So we need to get the TSA down there to start with. If it's uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> please no, not that, not that, the, either that, the, either I- that or right. right Ryanair will service down there. <laughs> <laughs> the ICAO code for the Wilkins runway is Yankee Whiskey Kilo Sierra. That's that's for the Wilkins run. That was that's actually carved out of um, glacial blue ice as opposed to ocean blue ice that the uh, C5 Galaxy landed on. So um, yeah, the, the one in the Australian Territory has been carved out of a glacier, which is pretty impressive. We've got four four major runways down there, all with their own identifiers. Two of them are pretty intense, blue ice one, and then the white ice and the and the packed snow. So it's it's starting to get pretty um, pretty popular down there for the aircraft. And it's amazing the variety of aircraft that end up going down there. The first jet aircraft to land down there was a C-141. The C-5 was done just because it was done. The C-17 seemed to be pretty routine, but it does comp. I mean, these are these are not little aircraft that are floating around on ice, and you got to give pilots credit. You know, there's a you got to give the guy who gets the. All the duty that says, oh, by the way, you're going to be the first person to land a C-5 on blue ice in Antarctica. You know, mm-hmm. it, <laughs> that's got to be a bit of a shock. <laughs> it's yeah. also got to be a good one for the records. But, yeah, uh, I don't think I'd be volunteering for that. I think you sum it up nicely there, David, and I couldn't agree with you more. The C-130s rocked my absolute favourite aircraft of all time, I'd have to say. C-130s when you need either a transport, a gunship, a rescue, a ski, you name it, it does it. It's a one-aircraft Air Force <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we better wrap it up there. Uh, David, you'd uh, better head off to bed, and uh, you better put the air conditioner on tonight, mate. If you've got that sort of heat going on there. Uh, 
can I just have a normal spring? This going from <laughs> dead of winter to summer is kind of ridiculous. But It's kind of clouded over here today. I, I fear we're heading into yeah. winter. It's probably going to get down around the, I don't know, what is it in Fahrenheit, maybe the 80s or the 70s. So what, what would you think, Grant? Yeah, yeah, it might even get down to the 60s. It's truth. Yeah. Trying to get the sweater out. Uh, okay, guys, rub it in a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> David, uh, just before we go, just remind the folks where we can find your fantastic blog, which I read constantly. It's wonderful. My blog, you can reach at www.whatjustflewby.com. And you can always hunt me down on Twitter at dmvanderhoof, and it's V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-O-F. That's excellent. Of course, you can also catch David on the Airplane Geek Show. He's got a segment just like we do on the Airplane Geek Show. It's You know, we have to keep those guys propped up with, with all our excellent content, I always think. So uh, catch David there as well. Well, gentlemen, thank you for having me. Hey, thanks, mate, and thanks for doing all the uh, all the effort to find out a bit more about uh, things in Antarctica. Hey, it's snow. I've gotten really used to it. <laughs> thanks, David. We'll talk to you soon. Eve is a time for celebration and down in this part of the world it's more often than not spent with family and friends knocking back the odd drink or two on a warm summer night. Recently though these people chose a far more unique way to welcome in the new year by travelling on board a Qantas A380 on a tour over the Antarctic. One of the many people enjoying the flight was the organiser Phil Asker from Croydon Travel and he joins us on the line now to tell us all about it. G'day Phil. G'day Hev, how are you fellas? Well thanks for spending some time with us Phil, we've been looking forward to this conversation, it's certainly grabbed a lot of media attention since you uh, headed down there for the first A380 flight. Yeah we we took a few journalists down and we got uh, TV coverage. It really was something quite different. Uh, we've been operating the Antarctica sightseeing flight since 1994 and up until now we've been using a 744 and this year we uh, managed to get an A380 from Qantas and the first time an A380's uh, done a commercial flight down over Antarctica and it was certainly a rather exciting night. Is this the first time you've run it over uh, New Year's Eve? No, we've done 16 of them on New Year's Eve. Uh, the very okay. first uh, Antarctica flight we did was uh, in New Year's Eve 1994 and uh, in fact that was a 743 uh, the Classic and we only used the Classics for the first season and then we've had uh, the 400s ever since and uh, we always do a New Year's Eve flight out of either Sydney or Melbourne and we leave Melbourne about 1700 fly down to Antarctica it's about 3 three hours 20, 3 hours 30 minutes out of Melbourne usually before we see the first ice and on the way down and uh, we've got a jazz band on board on New Year's Eve and so they play in the different cabins on the aircraft we literally have people dancing in the aisles but then that all stops once, uh, once the captain comes on and says he can see a, see some ice ahead, and usually you will start off with uh, just a few icebergs, and then you'll get into the Antarctic ice pack, and uh, you'll find hundreds of icebergs and a beautiful mosaic ice formations you can see. We'll still probably be at about 33,000 feet at this point, and uh, we'll then descend as we get close to the coast, because the ice goes up to six or 800 kilometres from the coast, and uh, we'll then de- descend down to 10,000 feet normally over the coast and uh, see the coastal cliffs, and then we do some absolutely magical views. Doing. Was this your idea, or did uh, Qantas put out to tender that they wanted? No, we were, we were talking to Qantas about uh, our captain's choice to a program. We were chartering a 763 to do a trip around Asia and Africa, and we were talking to Qantas at, uh, in late 2000, uh, sorry, 1993, and I said, well, why? 
Why, the rules, why can't we start the Antarctic flights again? As you probably know, they operated for a short period in the uh, 77 to 79 with both Qantas and Air New Zealand operating until uh, Air New Zealand DC-10 crashed on Mount Erebus in uh, November 79. And after that, uh, all the Antarctic flights were banned. Both airlines said they wouldn't do them anymore. So we then uh, talked to uh, Qantas and we're talking at the flight operations level. Uh, Captain Trevor Jensen was the person involved at that point. And basically he said, well, there's no reason why we can't can't do them. In fact, it's uh, it's the safest flying to LA. In fact, it's probably safer because there's no other aircraft in the sky. <laughs> we there's no ATC down there. We did have uh, some few, quite a few challenges, and also it was in the year that Qantas was being floated. And I've got to say, we we thought Qantas took a fairly gutsy decision to go ahead and to do it at that time. Technically, it was absolutely right to do, but the feeling among a few people at that time was it was an unsafe area to fly to because an aircraft had crashed there. But the opposite to that is there've been a lot of airports in the world that aircraft have crashed and it doesn't mean people stop flying there. We first of all had to convince people within Qantas or the flight ops guys were uh, very convinced and they were, they were very keen to get the program up and running and uh, it took a little while to uh, get a number of approvals. Uh, one of the approvals we needed was from the Australian Antarctic Division which operate the bases down in Antarctica and at that time we didn't realise that we actually needed that permission until we got a phone call from Hobart once the flights were announced and this was only about eight weeks before the departure of the first flight and we got a call from uh, somebody from the Antarctic Division who said well you can't operate these flights you don't have permission and we said well we didn't believe we need permission and uh, they indicated a rather long bureaucratic process that uh, we would have to go through to obtain that permission well I said to them well uh, can we come down and meet you in Hobart tomorrow morning I'm a little bit taken about back by that at first <laughs> but uh, Trevor and I went down the next morning we had a, a good meeting and we uh, we then found we had to do an envir environmental impact study on it which we put together very quickly and we continued to do that uh, EIS every year. It was a yearly process, now it's a five yearly process and we've developed a very good relationship with the people at the Antarctic Division. I think at first they were concerned that if an aircraft going down there did have an accident they'd be diverted from their scientific activities to mount search and rescue and so on and again it was a little bit of paranoia that had gone on because of the Erebus accident but well every, airlines always learn out of accidents and uh, Qantas brought in some hugely stringent controls that were very different to both, both uh, what Qantas were doing and Air New Zealand were doing back at the time of, uh, of the Erebus accident. And there's a number, number of things that have been brought in. One of them is the altitude. Uh, when that aircraft hit Mount Erebus, which is a 13,000 foot mountain, it was flying at 1,558 feet. And you're probably aware of the story of that accident, how the uh, coordinates were changed by the navigation department after the crew had done their, uh, their briefing. Yep. And the crew believed they were flying 26 miles east of where they were actually flying. Another that that resulted in, I think, something that I believe is now worldwide is the crew feed the coordinates in, not the navigation department. And quite a, also, there's now there's TCAS and there's all other navigation aids that didn't exist in the 70s. But also, we fly at 10,000 feet above sea level or 2,000 feet above the highest ground within 100 nautical miles, which is far more than the normal requirement of minimum safe altitude. So uh, if you're flying higher than the terrain, you can't collide with the, with the terrain. <laughs> it's a pretty safe bit. <laughs> so we brought that in. And when, when we say to people we're flying at 10,000 feet, people think, oh, you won't see anything at that altitude. Uh, Antarctica is the one part of the world that the human race hasn't polluted, hasn't ruined. And uh, there is no pollution down there. It's incredibly clear. When you're flying at 10,000 feet, you'd really think you're flying in a light aircraft at 3,000 feet. It's so clear. And uh, when we, we fly often at 18,000 feet, but that's above the high country, uh, above 
them uh, at the Transantarctic Range and we'll fly right up glaciers. You'll, you'd think you were flying between the walls of the glacier that's so clear, but you're actually probably 4,000 feet above them. And we also fly around the highest mountain in the region, Mount Minto, which is a 13,000-odd foot mountain. When we do a figure of eight around that mountain, the wingtips look like they're lower than the mountain. We always have people saying, oh, the mount, we're lower than the mountain. And in the days when we could go up to the flight deck and check things, these days, of course, since September 11, uh, even I, as the charterer of the aircraft, can't go to the flight deck. One time we were flying around the mountain and uh, somebody assured said, oh, we're certainly lower than the mountain. I went up to the flight deck and um, we were showing 18,000 feet and we were well above the mountain but it's just a, an optical uh, illusion and a stunning scenery as you're flying around these snow-covered mountains. You're talking about uh, some of those extra requirements. Was there a requirement to carry any sort of extra survival gear in the... Yes, uh, the original requirement was that we had to carry polar suits uh, for all crew and all passengers, whereas a great flurry went on for a while to try and somebody in Quanta said, oh, we had suits back in the 70s, they've got to be stored somewhere. Well, we eventually found where they were stored. It took a while before somebody located them, got them out and found out that they were rotted and they really were useless at that point. So we then had to, uh, to purchase 400 odd polar suits and we continued to have that requirement to have polar suits for crew and passengers for quite a number of years then it was then the requirement for passengers was withdrawn and we still had to have polar suits for crew but that that's no longer required. Polar suits really won't save you if you're down on the ice in an area where you couldn't get off anyway so that it's been now agreed that polar suits are not a requirement. We did, we did have an interesting exercise one day we were doing a flight out of Adelaide and we positioned the aircraft across to Adelaide on a Saturday afternoon and uh, we take passengers to Adelaide, we give them an Adelaide weekend, Why? that helps us offset the cost of getting the aircraft which is based in Sydney across to Adelaide they got over there mid-afternoon on Saturday, Sunday morning uh, we went out to the aircraft, Captain John Dennis who's the uh, Qantas uh, captain who's in charge of the Antarctic program, just did the check, where's the, the polar suits, just check the locker in uh, above the door where are the polar suits, no polar suits and uh, without the polar suits we couldn't go and uh, Sydney hadn't, hadn't loaded the polar suits so we actually had to wait until they were loaded on a domestic aircraft flown across to uh, Adelaide and we left Adelaide about four hours late and as a result didn't get back to Sydney before curfew. You'd think uh, that would carry a considerable weight penalty too with uh, all those polar suits? It did at the time, yeah. The, uh, with, so with that, we also a number of other requirements. The captain in command has to have operated an Antarctic flight as a crew member previously. On the New Zealand aircraft, neither of the crew had been to Antarctica before and there's quite a number of other just stringent activities. The crew in the past used to go through an emergency procedures training beforehand in the event of an emergency landing on ice. We've got, we've identified there's a number of ice, uh, blue ice runways that you could land on in an emergency. But also, it's one occasion where an aircraft, as one of the captains said to me one day, it's rare that you can have a back a plane up to the bowser and say fill it up. We actually <laughs> run with complete fuel, and we've actually got enough fuel to, uh, in the case of a decompression while we were down in Antarctica, and if we had to come back at 8,000 feet, we could actually do that into the nearest. Uh, nearest port and uh, there's enough fuel to cover that and there's also uh, enough fuel to get back in the case of uh, even a twin engine failure yep. so uh, and the alternates we have we're not always an Australian port sometimes the ultimate airport is uh, Dunedin and it has depending where we are if we're over the area around Casey in the far western part of the continent uh, the ultimate is Durban 
Qantas have been incredibly thorough on putting the program together. I've got to say, I was I spent quite a bit of time in the flight ops area when it was being put together, and we were, we were getting the approvals and uh, doing the EIS and other stuff. And the the, th- the thoroughness of Qantas is really well. Why they've got such a good reputation, and despite what the media might say in more recent times, uh, they really make sure that there's nothing left to chance. Yeah, no, I know know a few Qantas pilots, and their planning is normally pretty good for anything yeah. they do. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, one question is, uh, you know, not everyone can get a window seat on the flight, so do people move around? What we do is, in uh, most of the classes, now, on this aircraft, uh, both the 380 and the 747-400s, we've got the normal first business, premium economy and economy. Uh, in most of those classes, people move around and change the window seat. Uh, we actually have uh, one grade of first class. We have a first class fare, then we have a business class deluxe fare. And in business class deluxe, you have a window seat or the seat next to a window seat, so you the person who's got the window swaps to the aisle seat on the, at the halfway point. In first class, everybody gets to sit by the window using the guest seat, uh, but they change again, change to the proper seat halfway through. And uh, in the, the three seats in the centre of business class downstairs, they're sold at a much cheaper price. You still get the full business class food, drink and service uh, and space, but you don't get to a window. But you can still see out and you can view through the uh, through the two or three windows that are in every row anyway. And they're quite a bargain seat to have. Uh, in uh, economy, we actually have three grades, three types of seats. We have economy superior, which is the E-zone, the rear cabin, and we have economy standard, which are the front two economy cabins, which are over the wing or near the wing, and economy superior is the back cabin, which is well clear of the wing. We also have economy centre, which is our lead-in price of $999, and with economy centre, you're in the two seats, the E and F seat in the centre of the row of four, where you really can't see out the window at all, but as long as you get up, move around the aircraft, view through the windows in the doors, uh, we find people are very generous with their windows they'll actually a lot of people will invite people in to come and take a photo from the window and we do make a an announcement about that suggesting that people might like to do that and uh, but once people have been viewing the ice for an hour or two they're really quite happy to uh, let people come and you know, share their view in the superior economy or standard economy we have uh, you either have a window seat or the seat next to a window seat for half of the flight and at the halfway point you swap through swap over to an aisle seat so the person who's sitting in the window seat seat A moves to the inside aisle seat seat D and vice versa. The person who's in the seat next to the window seat, say seat B, they just move to seat C. They never move to the other side of the aisle. And it sounds complicated, but it actually works really well. And we've got in our website and in our brochure, we've got it very clearly indicated uh, what the seating situation is, where you move to, and nearly all people understand that, and it works It works, uh, works well. And if people are getting up dancing in the aisles, I mean, you know, everyone's sh- shifting around anyhow. Uh, it's a party flight, there's no doubt about that. It's, uh, New Year's Eve particularly, even the normal flights, we normally do the flights on a Sunday. They're yeah. a daytime flight out of Sydney or Melbourne about 8 or 8.30 and back about uh, 2000 or 20.30. And uh, they're, uh, they're also pretty lively flights. Everybody's going down there for the same reason and uh, everybody's in a good mood and uh, they do tend to enjoy the day. Now, in addition to um, bands for the New Year's Eve flight, do you have any other um, extra groups on? Yep, we normally have two Antarctic experts on board. Um, They're people who've lived and worked down in Antarctica. Some of them have been down there 20 or 30 times. Some of them spent seven or eight winters down there. And they're very passionate people. Everybody who is involved with with Antarctica becomes really passionate about the continent. And uh, so they they will talk uh, over the PA system about uh, various different aspects of life in Antarctica, the science, the the environment, uh, protection 
and so on, and uh, some stories. And then they walk around the aircraft and they talk to people one-on-one or in small groups. And uh, we also uh, do have them approved for the uh, for the flight deck, and we have one of them on the flight deck during the time over the ice to give the uh, give a commentary on what's coming up on the left, what's coming up on the right, and uh, they go through a full approval process to be uh, to be admitted to the flight deck. And uh, that's a great part of the flight because they know what they're talking about, and they'll they communicate that to people. And you'll sometimes find uh, people moving from one side of the aircraft to the other because the sights might be better on one side or the other at a particular <laughs> point. But quite often also we'll fly a, a circuit, a circuit, a figure of eight over uh, a particular attraction so that people on both sides of the aircraft do get to see it. Yep. We also uh, talk to the Antarctic bases over the PA system, and mm. uh, we'll normally get the, normally the captain or maybe the one of the Antarctic experts will uh, talk over the uh, to somebody at one of the Australian bases, or occasionally to the supply ship, the Aurora Australis, and uh, put that over the PA, and uh, that's that's always pretty good. People enjoy that. We don't do that New Year's Eve. They're usually not too much in a party mood down at the bases <laughs> on New Year's Eve. We got caught out one time. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Do the pilots ever comment on uh, the weight and balance of the aircraft? Oh, uh, yeah. We, we, well, we do quite a few things. Again, it's not like a normal flight. Like no other flight you'll ever take. Uh, we normally put air traffic control through over the PA system so people are listening to ATC as we're uh, taxiing out and approaching. We also have a camera mounted on the inside of the windshield and that shows the uh, the view from the, from the flight deck uh, of the runway and also of the view over Antarctica. Uh, on, the, on the A380, we can't do that that's technically too difficult to get that done but we use the tail camera on the A380 there is a tail camera which shows has the aircraft in front of it and shows the view as well and we uh, we also uh, we introduce the uh, Antarctic experts over the uh, video screens so that people know who they are and they do a short presentation on screen before they uh, start wandering around the aircraft. The, uh, the captain will normally also give you a little bit of a flying lesson, a bit of a bit of a story about how how you fly an aircraft, basically. With one of the and one of the other crew will hold the camera. Um, we used to have be able to get our cameraman up on the flight deck, but we can't do that anymore. But one of the uh, crew will hold the camera, and uh, the captain will then talk through the instruments and talk through the uh, consumptions and so on and uh, the loads. And yeah, people uh, people really love that. How many passengers were you getting? Was uh, the flight, you know, you booked these flights out? Uh, everything went out, well, with one exception, everything went out completely full this year. We had uh, one empty seat on the 380 out of Sydney on the 24th of January, but the other flights were all full, uh, except for somebody on the New Year's Eve flight who actually missed the flight in uh, Melbourne. We were uh, at the check-in counter and uh, with an hour to go, we were leaving from the international terminal and we had four people who hadn't, uh, caught, hadn't shown. And I got onto one of them on their mobile and um, I said, are you joining the Antarctic flight this evening? Yes. I said, well, where are, where are you? Oh, it's just about to cross the Westgate Bridge. <laughs> and I thought, well, you'll need to really move. We can't hold it open, but just park the nearest to the terminal and run. And I said, can you ring me, can you ring me when you're passing Essendon Airport? And they rang me at about 17.35. We were leaving at 18.10. I thought, oh, well, they're fine. Well, they'll make it. We were going to close the counter at about uh, 18.45. And um, we never heard from them again. So uh, they obviously uh, didn't quite make it. So we did go out with two empty seats. We got a, Very rarely do we get no shows. It's... Uh, unlike a normal flight where you know you always have a factor of no-shows, we don't overbook because uh, there's vir- virtually never is there a no-show. I'll tell you what, you would have uh, liked to have been a fly on the wall in that car uh, on the way up, I wouldn't have been. I'd say it probably wasn't a very happy New Year's No, I'd say it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, with the weather, do you do you ever get uh, whiteouts, low cloud, things like that? We've got 19 different routes we can cover, uh, so we're approved to operate 19 different routes down there, and we follow the uh, the weather through for about five days beforehand, both through the Qantas uh, meteorological people and also the Met Bureau in Hobart. Most of the guys in Hobart have been down on the flight, and also most of them have uh, worked in Antarctica at the Antarctic bases, and they're absolutely sensational. I follow the weather through. You can see what the pattern is. They update us with satellite pictures uh, leading up to departure, and they also update us as we're flying down. So sometimes we've actually got it right down to the coast and changed our routing completely. Uh, we've been uh, intending to head to the east, and instead we've headed to the west because we've spoken to the guys at the Australian base at uh, Casey, way up to the west, found out that they're standing in brilliant sunshine, and we had a question mark of cloud movement over in the Trans-Antarctic Range to the east. So we've turned decided, OK, we'll head off to Casey instead and had a day of brilliant viewing. It's a huge area. It's really like flying from Auckland towards the east coast of Australia. And somewhere between Melbourne and Cairns, you're going to find some good weather. And uh, that's basically uh, what we do is we all, uh, we'll go down and we'll track it through uh, Captain John Dennis, who runs the program, very passionate about what he does, very thorough and very much in touch with the, uh, the Met guys. And uh, we really do get some absolutely amazing viewing. Touch what I say, we've never had a, we've never had a day with no viewing, no. And I, we, we, I, we, don't, we really believe that would be very, very unlikely to happen. Uh, sometimes we have an area, a relatively limited area, and we might go up and down that area a number of times. Uh, we've had that happen where we've been uh, flying past the same cape for actually the fourth time, and so we've heard a passenger say, oh, I think I've seen that before. Yes, you've actually seen it four times before. <laughs> <laughs> but what we find is that people uh, will we'll not have a day like that where we'd go back, and we rate each flight. Uh, we might rate that only as a five or a six out of ten. We've got passengers absolutely raving about it because uh, they don't know how good it can actually get. And it yeah. can get absolutely amazing. Every every flight's different. Our normal routing is our preferred routing is we head down over the South Magnetic Pole. And the South Magnetic Pole is uh, out from the coast. It moves every year oh. and it's way out to sea at the moment. And we'll uh, normally show compasses spinning. We, we used to give people compasses. We found they didn't work that well within the aircraft. You have to have a good quality compass for it to, yep. to spin properly. Uh, and then we've come, to, we land, well we don't land, but we approach the coast at uh, at Dumont de Ville, which is a French base, and it's uh, you can see a runway that was built at Dumont de Ville 20 years ago, and it was uh, built against a lot of environmental protest, and the French went, bit, went ahead and built it anyway. Well, nature <laughs> got its own back. It uh, was blown, washed apart, ruined, totally wrecked uh, that winter, and it's never been rebuilt. But we'll see. We can see the remains of the runway, see the buildings on the ground and vehicles on the ground, and also the uh, beautiful astrolobe glacier, which is right behind this station. And then we fly along the coast, and you see the high coastal cliffs. Uh, we then head to Commonwealth Bay and Cape Denison, which is the windiest place in the world, and that's where the hut of the explorer Douglas Mawson's located, and you can make out uh, Mawson's hut. Uh, you can also see in the distance a huge penguin colony, and one of the environmental requirements we have is we have to have a, uh, a one-mile horizontal separation from any uh, any known penguin colonies, so we avoid, we avoid overflying penguin colonies. There was a concern about that, so that's written into the uh, agreement, and it's certainly something we, we want to make sure we don't pollute Antarctica, don't mm. cause any problems down there. It's one part of the world that the mankind hasn't ruined. And in fact, by taking people down and showing it to them, just showing the stunning beauty of the place, it really creates an opinion that the place should not be mined. Uh, it, was, it was a movement to uh, start mining in Antarctica, mm. and uh, there's a 50-year prohibition on that at the moment. And I think anybody who takes one of our flights down there would come back and say, hey, don't mine it. Mm. Leave it. Leave it for nature and leave it for science. Leave it for what it is, because it's an unbelievable part of the world. And also, we're opposed to 
um, building hotels or building tourist type accommodation down there, again, we don't want it to be ruined. You can go there as a tourist, but it's not to a hotel. It's you it's, can do it on a ship. You can go down yeah. by ship, and the the shipping companies that all the, all the ships that run down there, they have very stringent requirements as well. Nothing can yep. be left ashore, and trying to raise old things, take only pictures and leave only footprints. So then we uh, that normal we normally spend a bit of time over um, Wilson's hut. Then we go over the Ninnis and the Mertz glaciers, two great glacier tongues that go out to the sea, and then we pass an old Russian base at Leningradska, and then we head across the back of the Transantarctic Mountains. We head down to Mount Melbourne, a volcano, to the Italian base at Terranova Bay on the Ross Sea, and sometimes we'll see the Coolamon Islands out in the Ross Sea. Then we fly up the coast, and we can make out some of the other huts of the uh, early explorers the hero- during the heroic age of Antarctica. We then do a circuit around Mount Minto, see the huge cliffs at Cape Adare, and then we'll normally climb and head for home. Uh, and it's quite, a, quite funny, is the first probably first 30 minutes that you're seeing ice which is the ice pack off the off the coast people are taking photos and going absolutely berserk really excited to see uh, the ice at this point when we climb and head for home we probably may have another 20 even 30 minutes of ice viewing but by that stage most people have seen enough and don't even look out the window they're more looking for another drink and uh, (laughs) just uh, ready to party phil uh, just before we finish up here uh, tell us a bit about the charities that you support Uh, just looking on your website here there's a number of charities that you're supporting through the flights yeah, we are, our main charity we're supporting is Clean Up Australia. We've raised, uh, I think it's about $400,000, maybe a bit more than that for Clean Up Australia over a number of years. We also, with our Captain's Choice Tour program, where we charter a 744 or sometimes a 767 off Qantas or a 757 off Monarch Airlines in the UK, uh, we've also raised a lot of money for charity on those. And in fact, we've just built a school in Cambodia and uh, we, uh, we've, we've built a school and we're going to build two more schools in Cambodia. And we've, we've raised, probably raised and donated over the years with Captain's Joyce and with Antarctica, close to $3 million. We try to put something back into the areas we go to. Okay, Phil, the website is antarcticaflights.com.au and you've got some other websites here at Croydon Travel too, I think. Antarcticaflights.com.au is uh, our Antarctic site, but if anyone's interested in our other uh, charters with Qantas or with Monarch uh, or smaller groups that we do, it's www.captainschoice, that's captain, C-A-P-T-A-I-N-S, choice.com.au and there's a fair bit of uh, aircraft content on that. We do a number of charters. In, in addition to the Qantas charters and the Monarch charters, we also charter an F-28 uh, right through uh, Africa on our Cape Town to Cairo tour. We also uh, do a charter out to Timbuktu on a Saab 340 wow. uh, in West Africa. So we, we do the unusual things. We call ourselves the leaders in luxury travel to remote and exotic destinations and uh, aircraft are one of the means we use to get there. I'll tell you what, we'd love to uh, get you back on again some other time and have a talk about some of those other flights. They sound fascinating. Great. Yeah. Love to do it. Okay, Phil. Well, thanks very much for everything. That's been a great chat. I'm definitely hanging to, to take one of the flights now. I've, I've always wanted to, but now definitely uh, sounds like the New Year's Eve one's a real bash. So thanks for that, and uh, we really appreciate your time chatting with us today. Okay, thanks a lot, fellas. G'day, this is Owens Up. Join me in May 2010 as I trek around Australia in a Jabiru 230 to celebrate the centenary of powered flight down under and in the process raise vital funds for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Check out my website and follow my progress at www.thereandback.com.au. In the meantime, sit back, relax and enjoy the in-flight service with Grant and Steve on Playing Crazy Down Under. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm David. And we're two of the voices in your head. Come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying. Well, it's not really old-fashioned. What do you mean? Well, 
It's a Skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet. But we got beer. That is true. And we never know who we might run into. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay, okay, you win. Uh, come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at pilotsflightpodlog.com. Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.plainecrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. Well, that was a great chat there with Phil about uh, what's involved in organizing these flights down across the Antarctic with Qantas. Let's have a chat now with someone who was actually on the flight as a passenger. And I was lucky enough to stumble into David Halls at the uh, Melton Air Show, the centenary of flight here in Australia. And David mentioned in passing that he was on the uh, the last New Year's Eve flight. And quick as a flash, I whipped out the recorder and said, we need to talk. Okay, I'm standing here with David Halls. Uh, David, you were a passenger on uh, an A380 that did the uh, Antarctic flight. Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. My wife and I uh, went off from Melbourne. We got the plane at Melbourne. Uh, it was about a four-hour flight to actually get over Antarctica, and you come in. flies at about 1,800 feet. Yep. Um, 1,800 metres, sorry, not feet. Get it right. Uh, you can see marvellous sights. There's pack ice, and then you get over the ice flows. Talk about the, the fjords and the way the ice moves. It's just so vast. You just, it, it's, un, it's impossible to actually explain what it looks like. It's just yeah. white. There's mountains that tower up underneath the, the plane itself. I and mean, we're flying at 1,800 metres and there's, there's mountains that are just below you. Yeah. It's like you could reach out and touch them. Cool. Absolutely fantastic. We actually didn't get over the South Pole because of weather. Yeah. But we went along, I think it's the East Coast, and there's a valley yep. that's got a big ice flow fjord going through okay. it. And you could look down at the colours where it changed from white to blue to green and yep. we got near a Italian base where they actually okay. fly light aircraft in and out and they've oh, got okay. an ice strip on the on the yeah. field see that it was brilliant and of course we had a jazz band there that kept us all entertained and cool. um, it was just a great night New Year's Eve it yep. just went so long it was a 12 hour flight and it went gone gone yep. no time at all wow the, the stewardess and steward, stewardess and stewards were fantastic yep. always keeping on we fed with food and drinks yep. and all that sort of stuff and a bit of dancing if you wanted to. Cool. Um, we swapped round seats. We, when we first left, we were actually in the middle of the plane, but okay. about halfway through the flight, they changed everybody around so yep. we can get a window seat and look out of it. Got hours of video. <laughs> <laughs> cool. But all in all, it's just absolutely fantastic experience. Yep. Quite enjoyed well, it. Well worth um, it. Yeah, and they had a, an expert, an um, yep. ex-scientist from the Australian Antarctic Division, yep. wandering around the cabins and just chatting about the different types of ice and the, where the wind blows the ice into oh, okay, yeah. lumps and layers. Yeah. And if you look at it from the, from where we were, it looked like um, on the sandy roads, on the dirt roads oh, yeah, you yeah. get, the, I the forget corrugations. Get, corrugations. Yeah. When, you, when you get lower, you realise they're, they're two kilometres high and ten kilometres wide. Oh, wow. It's just absolutely fantastic. So, nothing ever seen anything like it before in my life. Okay. 
Thanks, David. No worries. Well, there you go, mate. And uh, I tell you what, the more I listen to this, the more tempted I am to get onto one of these flights. What about you? Definitely. If, uh, if I could just find a way to sell off that other kidney and not die. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> well, folks, we've heard about uh, what it's like to fly down there. We've heard about some interesting data from some rather unfortunate events that have happened down there. We've heard uh, what it's like to organise the flight and what it's like to be a passenger. Grant, I think there's only one other aspect of the flight that uh, we haven't covered, and that's what it's like to be a flight attendant on board there. So what we thought we'd do here just to round things out was to introduce yet another McHeron to the uh, Plane Crazy Down Under <laughs> podcast. No, it's not Nikolai this time. It's uh, Grant's sister, Tanya, who worked for Qantas some time ago and actually crewed on one of these flights, and uh, we recorded a very quick interview with her and uh, she can uh, tell us just what it's like to work on board one of these flights. Well, folks, right now we're going to have an interview with Tanya McCarran. Yes, she is related. She has the extreme misfortune of being my sister. Tanya has been a uh, Qantas flight attendant for quite a number of years. We'll talk about that in a bit. And Tanya worked on one of the flights over the Antarctic ice cap. And so we're going to have a chat about that. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. And my commiserations in in advance for putting up with Grant for all these years. Oh, it's been a chore, but we got there. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, we seem to get on best when we're in different countries, but at the moment, for, you know, <laughs> she, she's up north of Sydney, I'm in Melbourne, it seems to work okay that way. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing all right. <laughs> so, Tanya, how long were you a, were you a uh, Qantas trolley dolly? Um, I was a flight attendant, Grant, for seven years. <laughs> Sorry, I just had You're to in trouble already, Grant. <laughs> she had to get it in. <laughs> uh, Tanya made the mistake of saying she was a trolley dolly once, once in my hearing, and I've never let her forget it. <laughs> <laughs> So you were seven years, and how, how did you start off? With domestic, with Australian Airlines, actually. Um, two years domestic, and the merger happened with Qantas. Um, don't ask me to name years because it's all a blur. But I applied for a transfer to the long-haul division once Australian Airlines merged into Qantas and mm. spent another five years flying long-haul. Okay. Now, you've travelled pretty much everywhere Qantas goes, I believe, on the long-haul, yeah? Except Canada. When they um, were doing the Vancouver flights, and also Vietnam, I couldn't get those. It's a seniority concept for bidding, and um, I was always too junior to get those sectors. But um, then when I finally did get seniority, they stopped flying there. But yes, everywhere else I can probably tick off. Why did you decide you wanted to fly uh, the Antarctic scenic routes? Was there, was it just there's another place of Qantas that I want to go to, or was there something more? Personal motivation. What happened, for those of you who remember the Erebus unfortunate incident with Air New Zealand all those years ago, Um, I was 14 at the time that happened. I remember the news flash coming across. I obviously was living in New Zealand back then. And um, the news flash came across that evening on television that the flight was missing. Um, I think everyone in New Zealand would have had a sense of dread. Being such a small country, there was always that sort of, oh, gosh, I might know someone. Um, As it turned out, we did have a family friend who was one of the flight crew. I thought I'd dealt with it at the time. Um, Years later at Qantas doing our annual emergency procedures training, Erebus was brought up as an example of an incident and what can go wrong. And I guess in hindsight, I probably had a a mild form of post-traumatic stress in relation to it. I started to shake and get all teary and um, couldn't stay in the room. And so I thought, well, face your fears and deal with them and get over it. So I stuck my hand up for an Antarctic charter and got the New Year's Eve one. So fun and games. And that that was going to be on a 747 back then, wasn't it? Not the A380. Yes, it was. No, no, that was 747s. I think it was a classic that we went down on. No, it wasn't even a 400. No, I don't think it was. I think it might have been a 300. Okay. Hmm. So could be mistaken there. It's a while ago now, but yeah, I think it was... (laughs) 300. Was there much okay. competition, uh, Tanya? Was there much com- competition to get on those flights back at that time? Good question. Um, 
I don't think so. Perhaps the first one or two that went out there would have been for the novelty factor and for those crew that were interested in doing that sort of thing. Um, then word started getting around about how hard a tour of duty it actually was. And I remember being on the crew, perhaps because it was New Year's Eve, it was a rather junior crew. Yeah, everyone else wanted to be anywhere but over That's the Antarctic Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of odd in a way because looking at some of the videos on YouTube of uh, you know the, the fun and games they have on those flights, it sounds like it would be a wonderful place place to spend I New Year's think Eve. the passengers had a fantastic time. Yes, emphasis on the passengers. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. we'll come, we'll, we'll come that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I do have good memories. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so let's let's talk about the lead up. Once you volunteered to be on the on the crew, and I take it it was a volunteer situation. People um, you bid for it, I okay. think. In memory, we we put it on our bids, and I was lucky enough to get it. And what happened once you once you bid and and accept and were accepted? What was, I take it it's not your average flight. What happens from there? No, um, the only difference for cabin crew, and I imagine it would be very different for flight crew. But for cabin crew, um, we had a two-hour pre-flight briefing. My memory of that is practicing donning Antarctic suits, the survival suits, um, learning where they were stowed on the aircraft, um, drills from, I'm not, I don't think it was our regular EP instructor, I think they might have had someone come in to talk to us about what to do in an event and you know how to don the flight suits, survival tactics, that sort of thing, and reiterating over and over how safe it was to fly over there. <laughs> and also, I think they made a point about um, the ecological impact as well, how they'd researched that and it wasn't going to be an issue. There must have been someone from Croydon travel there also, I think. But that was the extent, that was the only difference that as opposed to a normal flight was the extra briefing. So you've, you've done the two-hour briefing, you've gone out to the plane. How'd the flight mm -hmm. go? The only tricky bit was with boarding. Now, apparently passengers had been told that some would come on and have window seats, some would be in the middle. Um, halfway through the flight, they would organise for people to swap. So they'd been given, I think, two boarding passes. Okay. Um, of course, naturally, people boarding in Sydney who didn't have the window seats were perturbed. There were people wanting to swap seats, all that sort of mayhem. Um, but that got sorted, and I basically, I think everyone was pretty happy by the end of the flight. Everyone got to see plenty of ice. Everyone got the feeling like they didn't miss out. So there was a bit more of an issue with boarding than there normally is in flights. Everyone was very excited, a very um, joyous mood in the air, I suppose. <laughs> and otherwise, then it was business as usual, strap in and take off and a very long flight to get down there. So uh, was it pretty much you, you folks were just doing the normal thing until you got to the ice or were you busy right from the start? I remember we were serving a meal and <laughs> that's right. We got down towards Hobart and, oh, um, must have been Christmas Eve, not New Year's Eve, because the Sydney to Hobart yachts were out. And oh. I remember we had, we had the drinks carts out in the aisle, which are the, the little half carts, not very good at balancing. And the captain made an announcement, oh, we're going to descend so you can all see the yachts. And we went into a dive and we were trying to hold the carts up <laughs> <laughs> and stop all the bottles of wine falling off the top. <laughs> Would have been like a scene out of Flying High. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, apart from that, business as usual, serving a meal, serving drinks. I think we were over the ice um, for the time they deemed to be midnight. And then... Um, um, yeah, we served, no, it would have been New Year's Eve, wouldn't it? Sydney to Hobart's after Christmas, Boxing Day, it's, yeah. It's on. So they deemed it to be midnight whenever they deemed it to be over the <laughs> ice and um, we popped the champagne and I just remember taking trays and trays and trays of champagne out to people who couldn't get enough. <laughs> um, I remember passing my camera to uh, some passenger and saying, could you take photos for me? 
because I didn't have a chance to actually look out at the view, although they did have the cameras mounted underneath, so they, um, everyone could see what was going on outside. But I wanted some photos, so a kind passenger took some for me. And the uh, drink service went on for a long time. <laughs> People were partying. Um, we had a jazz band on board. We had a news crew on board. It was very hard to get through the aisles. I remember business class, I think it was, was going off because Kerry ann Kennelly was up there and singing away and having a grand old time. Oh, good I Lord. didn't get up there. <laughs> I was too busy. And then it was time for crew to organise time off and I just remember sleeping very soundly. Yeah. So you didn't yeah. get to see much in the way of uh, looking out the window or anything like that? I guess you sound like you were too busy. I did, <laughs> I did manage to look out the door um, right for, I think, a couple of times. Didn't get a lot of time to actually enjoy it myself. But of what you did see, did you? Would you say it's as spectacular as everybody has told us it yes. is? Yeah. Yes. From what I could see on the screens, absolutely. The passengers were in raptures. They thought it was the best thing. They were all ooing and ahhing and looking out the windows. And it, the bits I saw, it, it was spectacular. I think any other time bar New Year's Eve, you probably as crew would have got to appreciate it a lot more. So on the return leg, did the captain do the old trick of you know turning up the heating a bit, maybe uh, dropping the cabin pressure a bit and sending everybody to sleep? He might have because um, it was quiet <laughs> on the way back and I certainly remember um, going for time off. Actually, maybe it was a 400 because we did go up to the tail. Yeah, so it must have been a 400. But we had yep. the bunks and I just remember going for my time off and just being so exhausted and we got back to Sydney, uh, Melbourne maybe, and then had to pack back to Sydney. It was so tiring. <laughs> but I'm glad I did it. So how was it afterwards, uh, after you recovered? With, did you did you feel like you had set the uh, family demon to, de- to rest, so to speak? Oh, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So it was, a, it was a success all round. I mean, it's one of those things that you can tick off your list. Yes, I've done it. Yes, I conquered a demon. And I did get to see a little bit. The photos turned out really well that the passenger took for me. And, <laughs> you know, the bits I did see out the window and on the monitors were great. Okay. Anything else you want to say about what it was like? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I think I look back with my years with Qantas and I think, gee, you know, that, that was a highlight for various reasons, yeah. Probably would have been more fun if I'd got to um, have some of the champagne, but anyway, rules are rules. Well, let's do that as a paying passenger in the future then. Yes, that's right. Yeah, well, Actually, I probably would do it as a passenger. I think it would be very exciting. Just looking at how the people were reacting... I think it would be a fun thing to do. I would never um, sail on one of those boats out of Ushuaia to go and see the Antarctica because it's too cold, but um, I think flying over it would be fine. Okay, well, that's uh, been a fascinating discussion there on uh, what it's like to be cabin crew there on a flight down to the Antarctic, Tanya. It sounds like it's uh, probably one of the more exhausting legs that you've done, but uh, hopefully being on the podcast with us wasn't quite so exhausting and uh, maybe you'll come back and speak to us again sometime. It would be a pleasure. And there we go, folks. Isn't it refreshing to hear Grant being put in his place by his big sister? Oh, thanks, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I might have to employ her on a full-time basis, mate, just to keep you in check. Uh, I don't know if you could afford her. She'd want a lot of money for that. She's had to do it most of her life. Now, if she sees a chance to get some money from it, you know it's going to be expensive. (laughs) Yes, yeah. And I can understand why. However, I move on. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, folks, that's about everything we have for you on this week's episode of Playing Crazy Down Under, the special Antarctic edition. Grant, this has been one of the most fascinating shows we've done I've really enjoyed these interviews we've been collecting over the last month or so. Yeah, no, it has been great putting it together and uh, coming up with the uh, the seed of putting this episode based on, initially we, we had a chat with Phil from Captain's Choice Travel. The initial idea was that it would be pretty cool to talk to Phil about the, the flight and how what went into it. And then from that we had the idea of, hey, well, let's talk to a few other people. And I remembered my sister.
registered flown on it. So let's get her in. And then the idea of approaching Sky Traders to organize an interview. And by chance, they happened to be at, at the air show. So we organized in advance to go and chat with them. We had that teed up before we even got to the air show. And uh, then stumbling across David to to get the passenger's perspective, it, it really just brought, brought it all together. And I'm really pleased with how it's all, all come together. Yeah, actually, Grant, um, and we might just mention that I know we talk about Australian Aviation Magazine a lot as being our favorite, and that's with good reason. They're, uh, some people have asked us, are they a sponsor of the show? They're actually not. We just enjoy reading the magazine a lot. And uh, Dan Colborn, who we spoke to at the at the top of the show, has actually, uh, in the March edition of Australian Aviation, has written a, uh, a wonderful account of a flight down to Antarctica. There's uh, some great photos and uh, a really far more in-depth description of uh, what's involved in these flights and, and how they do it. So if you haven't uh, read that one already, folks, I'd really encourage you to uh, grab that one, the uh, March edition of Australian Aviation. Grant, I'm sure you'll be reading that one on your flight across to Indonesia shortly. Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm partway through it already and I have a uh, rather large stack of aviation magazines to work my way through. Okay, and with that, folks, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks very much for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, as always, you can hear us on the Airplane Geek Show at airplanegeeks.com and uh, check out our website, folks. We've uh, done a few upgrades to the website recently, a few more editions there, and, uh, of course, we've um, the About Us tab also now includes a bit of a bio on our uh, our latest contributor, Anthony Simmons. So if you haven't been to the website for a while, I'd really encourage you to do that. But in the meantime, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, wearing your beanie and thermal underwear and Antarctic survival gear, just remember this. It's what's way down under that counts. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.plainecrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Do you, want me to, do you want me to do it? Yeah, you do it. I'm, I'm yeah, so that... blown away by my wittiness, I just lost it all. <laughs> I spend enough time in New York, I can speak yeah. American. Like, totally. For, word, for sure. Check out those fresh new tunes. They're dope. Wow. Dope. God. Y'all. That's so fat. Oh, God, help me. Okay, let's <laughs> roll this thing. <laughs> Is Maybe it really that bad? No, it's not, but I'm having fun with it. <laughs>
I hope they don't listen to the show after all the nasty things you've been saying about them, Grant. They, they, I've got more chance of getting on a Tiger Airways flight than you've got of getting... <laughs> Ready? Yeah, go okay, for it. Okay, yep. you can begin editing now. Um... <laughs> How's that yeah, sound? No, it definitely made it a lot better. <laughs> Sorry. That's good. I was greeted, with, si- I was greeted with silence. <laughs> oh, I was stunned. stunned. There you go. <laughs> oh, Grant, hey, Grant, did I have to have the solid red light on or was it the blinking one? That'll work. Yeah, I might re-record that later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sure you'll figure it. Well, Grant, seeing as I mean, it's your sister, Grant, I think you should do the intro. Okay, I'll be nice. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, we've got a solid red, yeah? Uh, your lack of trust disturbs me, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to it, Steve, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Chris. <laughs> Say hello. Hello. And goodbye. Hi, bye. <laughs> Oh, well, I just kicked Chris off his drum kit so we could actually hear ourselves think, so. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that works, that works. I mean... I know Lola wants a drum kit for Christmas, so there you oh. go. You can have ours. <laughs> <laughs> you can have it with my compliments. <laughs> Does it come with child? Uh, well, you know, if you like. Could be, could be. He doesn't no, eat much, well, that's, that's not true, he eats a lot. <laughs> He's 12, he's an eating machine. Yeah, we know a couple of um, present-day... Um, cabin crew, and so was, you can't uh, get was, away from saying trolley dolly. <laughs> he says it all the time. Correct, please. <laughs> Have you listened to Grant on his radio show yet? No, I haven't. Oh. And I slack. I should send you some of the outtakes. <laughs> yeah, send me some. <laughs> Thanks a lot.